It's good to be with you this morning again. Last night as we talked, we laid a foundation for the faith of our forefathers here in Virginia, their commitment to Jesus Christ to follow his teachings, to love enemies, and what that meant. But when the Civil War came, these people were really not prepared. They had no plan of action as to what they would do when they were called into military service. And so for the first year, the Mennonite people struggled with what to do. And as we look back on what they did, sometimes we uh, wonder if they did the right thing, but it was a growing thing. And one of the things that I've convinced is that convictions grow, convictions develop, and as we lead people along, we lead them closer and closer to the teachings of Jesus. And that's what happened. And I think it's because they had several strong leaders. In First Chronicles 12, 32, one of those books of the Bible we don't go back into very often, but uh, there's a description of the sons of Issachar, the leaders of the elders of Issachar, and it says the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And that's what God has called leaders to do, to be understanding of the times and to lead their people. And there were two leaders uh, in Virginia that um, God used to lead his non-resistant people at this time. One of them was a man by the name of Samuel Kaufman. Samuel Kaufman grew up over here in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, that county where our people have been going to the last number of months for flood cleanup. He was, uh, grew up in that community, but made the decision to move back to the Shenandoah Valley partly because of love, and partly because the church there was dying. The church was too small to continue to exist, and the people were marrying into other churches, and so the Mennonite church became smaller and smaller. And so Samuel Kaufman, with roots in that community, uh, came to the Shenandoah Valley and was called to leadership, and right before the Civil War was ordained as bishop, in the church, and so he gave strong leadership. His, he kept a love for the people of Greenbrier County, however, and would drive the many, or ride his horse the many, many miles uh, back in across the mountains, and the people along the way loved him. The children along that route that he rode the many miles to Greenbrier County uh, called him Granddaddy Kaufman. He learned to know the people as he traveled along. But he, for, on him fell the responsibility of leading the church in the Shenandoah Valley and in Virginia there in, this, in his district. And he was very clear that no one should go into the Confederate Army willingly or they would lose their membership in the church. That brought grief in the community because the community was out to get him, and for a number of months he had to leave the community and go to Pennsylvania and Maryland 
leaving the church leaderless because of the fact that his life was in danger. The other leader who was very important was a man who was from the Brethren Church, Elder John Klein. Elder John Klein discerned the times, and in his diary right before the Civil War began, he wrote on January 1, the year opens with dark and lowering clouds on our national horizon. Secession means war, and war means tears and ashes and blood. It means bonds and imprisonments, and perhaps even death to many of our beloved brotherhood, who I have confidence to believe would die rather than disobey God by taking up arms. And he gave leadership to the brethren people, but the Mennonites and brethren people forgot their differences over baptism and the love feast and worked together to find ways to become exempt from the Confederate military. So for the first year, many of the young men, and young men meant anybody from 18 to 45, uh, went into the Confederate Army with the understanding that they would not shoot. It was a difficult situation. It was a time of crisis for many of them in conscience. Stonewall Jackson, the leader of the Virginia militia, uh, found out that these men would not shoot and so tried to delegate them to other jobs. He called them non-combatant jobs, realizing that these jobs, while supporting the war effort, would not involve shooting. And again, it was a crisis of conscience for many of these men because they realized that they were helping the war effort even though they were not out on the battle lines shooting. And so there came a time when they began deserting and coming back home, many of them with permission to help harvest the fall crops and so forth, but to come home and then um, disappear, go into hiding. The Shenandoah Valley was full of men who were hiding. And on the other side, the Shenandoah Valley was full of many people who were searching for people who were hiding to take them back to the uh, battlefield. Rather than tell many, many stories, I thought I would tell one story, and I was going to have a children's lesson, but I'm not sure there's much room for children up at the front, so maybe I'll just let everybody be a children's lesson. But if some of the children want to come up to the front bench or sit on the floor here, uh, they're welcome to. What's your, I don't know what your practice is here, but um, maybe I'll just make everybody uh, be in the children's lesson this morning. But these comments are primarily for you little people who are scattered here and there. There were many John Heatwalls in the Shenandoah Valley. And so everybody gave nicknames. And one of those was a man who, uh, because of his occupation, uh, received a, a nickname. He was a potter. He made pottery. Crocs, jugs, he made ceramic bowls. Uh, if you can find one of them today, it's well out of our price range because they're very valuable collector's items today. The pieces that I have are fragments of pottery that are not worth that much. Potter John was one of those who the first year went into the Confederate Army. 
he always shot high because he didn't want to shoot anyone. But when his year was up, he came home, and suddenly he found out that he was supposed to, uh, was conscripted, was drafted into the Confederate Army, and he was to be there for three more years. And he said, no way. He had come to a crisis of conscience. He had seen what war was like. He knew that that was not where he should be. And so Potter John went into hiding. He hid at home, he hid in the haystack, and then he began building little huts in the mountains of western Rockingham County, and he would move around from hiding place to hiding place. Some of them were camouflaged, some of them were stocked with food, and he took a little bit of furniture and he took books along. He would come home from time to time to replenish his food supply, but then he would go back into the mountains again and again. One time he came to his, one of his little huts and discovered someone had been there and stole his food. But he noticed they didn't take his books, so he figured they weren't of, of the literary type, he said. One time he came into his little hut, one of his huts in the dark, and something brushed against his leg. When he lit a light, here was a rattlesnake in his cabin, in his hut. And it did not bite him because it was in the process of swallowing a large rat. And so its mouth was full of rat. A protection of God on his servant there in his little hut there in the mountains. From lean-to to, to lean-to in remote hollows, he moved around. And finally, word got out in the valley by scouts who were trying to find him where he was. And someone by, came by a back way and warned him that he needed to uh, leave and escape because scouts were coming to uh, capture him. He woke up the next morning and it had snowed. How do you escape in the snow? Stories have come down through the years, and sometimes with storytelling you wonder, is this really what happened? But the story is that he decided that he would walk out of his house backward. And he walked through the snow backward up the mountain. Now it's hard enough for most of us to walk backwards on level ground, but to walk backwards up a mountain is quite difficult. But he left and headed over the mountain. Eventually, the scouts crossed his path and followed his tracks to his little cabin, to his little hut. They opened the door, and what do you think they found? I told this story one place, and the little child said, a rattlesnake. No. <laughs> Rattlesnakes were in hibernation at that point. Nothing. It was empty. One of the scouts said, well, he must have ascended because he's not here. Maybe they weren't expert trackers to realize that the tracks were going backwards through the snow. 
He, for the rest of the Civil War, Potter John lived in West Virginia, in the North Fork region of the Potomac, working on farms, working in apple orchards, living among the people of West Virginia. He took two things with him. He took his Bible, and he took his Mennonite Confession of Faith, probably the little 1837 Peter Burkholder Confession. And as he lived among the people there in the Potomac Valley of the North Fork, he shared with them his faith. And when he came home at the end of the war, he told the ministers, he said, these people need to hear the gospel. These people have interest in what we believe. And the ministers expanded their circuit-riding preaching and went back into the mountains and shared the gospel in that community. I don't know if there's a direct link, but today there are two Mennonite fellowships in that community with names similar to the names of the people that uh, were living there when Potter John uh, visited among them. In our fellowships, there's Sites, there's Dollies, there's Vances, who are members of the church today uh, because, at least in part, because of the testimony of Potter John. And so the gospel was shared even during this difficult time. Others who went into hiding found that it was very difficult and a whole system of an underground railroad developed where there were stations, guides, depots, the Underground Railroad, not the Underground Railroad that we read about in history where the blacks went north to uh, freedom. But this was Brethren Mennonite, other conscientious objectors being led through the mountains so that they could get across the mountains into West Virginia and then up into Ohio and Maryland to escape service in the military. Two groups I want to talk about this morning. One was a group of 14. They were captured around Moorfield, West Virginia to refresh West, the counties that became West Virginia refused to go with the Confederacy. And so when you got into West Virginia, it was kind of an ambiguous area, but it was safer territory. And so people headed for West Virginia. The 14 were taken uh, by, from various places and ended up in the courthouse in Harrisonburg as prisoners on the second floor. To their amazement, they found three other prisoners there. One of them was Elder John Klein, the brethren man I talked about, and two Mennonite leaders who were in prison there because they were having too much influence in the community, convincing people to follow the ways of Christ. For several weeks they were there, and no one was sure what would happen to them. People were afraid. Would they be shot? What would happen to them? Brother John Klein, as a minister, preached to them from time to time. The ladies of the community gathered in their old-fashioned term provisions and brought them to the courthouse so that the men had something to eat. John Klein was also a doctor 
and it was very handy to have him there because the historical records said they all got the epizootic. You can ask Brother Freed what an epizootic is, and uh, but he was there to doctor them for their epizootic. They were afraid to be, some were afraid that they would be killed, but eventually they were all released because the Virginia legislature said if people pay a $500 fee and are members of the Mennonite or Brethren Church, they can be exempted. Some were too poor, but the Brotherhood pitched in and the fees for these men were paid and they were released from prison. A son of the deacon who collected the money said he had never seen money come in so fast as people shared money so that the brothers could be released from prison. And it was a time of rejoicing because no one was sure exactly what would happen. Even one local confederate said it was the time was a reign of terror. Another group of men who tried to escape into West Virginia and then on into Ohio are called the Seventy. A group of 70 men made their way to Petersburg, West Virginia, across the mountains. And at Petersburg, West Virginia, they crossed the river. Some were on horses, some were walking, so they had to go back and forth to take the men across the river. And several miles north of Petersburg, the group of 70 were stopped by two Confederate scouts and, quote, arrested. The men did not resist and were taken back to Petersburg where they were imprisoned for a short time. And then, with a few other guards, a very few guards, they began the long walk that eventually took them to Stanton, Virginia. They walked from Petersburg, West Virginia, down to Franklin and spent the night in the courthouse. They walked on to Monterey, another day's walk. And then they had a two-day walk across the mountains to Stanton. The group spread out. And many of them were tempted to disappear into the woods. But they kind of covenanted together that we will stick together because if some of us escape, it will be harder for the rest. And this whole group of men did not resist their captors and were taken to Stanton. I think two of them escaped. At one point, they were asked to show what their weapons were, and they pulled out their testaments and said, this is our weapon. They were taken to Stanton, and then by train they went to Richmond, where they were taken to Castle Thunder. And for about six weeks they were in prison there while the Confederate government decided what to do with them. Again, it was a time of fear for the people in the valley because their sons, their husbands, their fathers were in prison. The Virginia legislature had made an exemption, but now the Confederacy had begun drafting men into their army, 
And so the Confederacy had to decide, will we make exemptions or not? Will we make exemptions or not? People came and interviewed these men and felt like that they were sincere in their beliefs. And eventually the Confederacy made a decision that anyone who was a member of the Mennonites, the Dunkards, which were brethren, the Nazarenes, which no one knows who they were, and the Society of Friends could be exempted from military service if they paid a $500 fee or else hired a substitute. The Brotherhood again began collecting money, and many, many, and the many people pitched in to pay the fines of these men. But these were only the men who were church members. Those who were not church members at this point uh, had to go into some kind of non-combatant service. Again, there was a crisis of conscience because many of these men, even though they had not made a commitment to the church, had been raised in homes and had a conviction about not serving in the military But God had provided a way out. The Confederacy was very pro-God. They had put God in their constitution and were very proud of the fact that the United States Constitution does not mention God, but theirs did. Of course, perhaps in return for that, Abraham Lincoln put in God we trust on all the money. So both sides were claiming God to be on their side. And in the midst of this, you have this conflict, you have those who refuse to participate in the conflict. And God provided a way uh, of exemption for them. But the Confederacy, as they, legislature, as they were discussing this, one of the men from South Carolina said, does anyone know anybody that believes and lives like these people claim to live? And the representatives from the community where the Mennonites and Brethren came from said, yes, we have people in our community that believe this and live this way. The testimony of the long-term testimony of the home people helped to convince the Confederate legislature to give an exemption to military service. But even more so, the fact that 70 men, able-bodied men, men from farm families, men who were strong, had not fought back when two men arrested them. They could have easily overpowered them, but they chose to follow a non-resistant path, and the Confederate legislature was convinced that these people were genuine because their lives backed it up. A more troubling issue for us today is some chose the, op the way of hiring a substitute. At that time, it apparently was not a conscience issue very much to hire someone to take your place. The price of substitutes kept going up and up and up until finally the Confederacy banned the practice. 
but in Pennsylvania, Ohio, many other places, probably without too much fear, uh, thought about it, people hired substitutes to take their place in the army. But it came home to bother them. It came home to bother them when someone who went into the army to take their place was killed. An Amishman in eastern Pennsylvania, Amish Mennonite, um, John Stolzfus from the Millwood Congregation, uh, hired someone to take his place, and the man was killed in battle. And somehow the man's uniform came back to John Stolzfus, and he kept that, and for years he would take it out and look at it. This man died because I did not go into the army. And that growing conscience that this was not right to hire someone else to take my place or to take my son's place was a slowly developing issue of conscience that uh, the Spirit of God developed a conviction so that today we would not even see that as, as an option. But it was a growing conviction. A growing conviction. Actually, what these people were doing in fleeing, hiding, hiding others, was disobeying the law. And what it meant was a choice as to whether you follow what you believe to be the way of Christ or to what the government says. In the book of Acts, we're told we ought to obey God rather than men. That was the uh, decision of the church there in the book of Acts. We will follow God, and that's what the people did in this community. Pressure came from the social media of their day. And we, similar to we find many voices speaking today. The social media of their day was the newspapers. And the newspapers, people put letters in and said, these Mennonites, these brethren, these ones opposed to the war, they're just prolonging the war. If they really preached peace like they said, they would support the government so that we, this war would get over. Some of them in the letters said, the Bible doesn't really mean turning the other cheek literally, but if you're going to go the second mile, why don't you send two sons to the army? If you're drafted for one term of servants, why don't you go for two? Or at least go and be shot at if you can't shoot in good conscience. The pressure from neighbors was strong. And one of the reasons that was often thrown at the Mennonite people were, you're a wealthy bunch of people. You have more money than other people. You can afford to hire substitutes. You can afford to pay this $500 fine. Perhaps a lesson for us and for them is make sure that all of your lifestyle is consistent with your convictions. If you're going to follow Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount on loving your enemies and not fighting, 
then also be careful to follow what he says about money, about using your money wisely. On the other side, it is to be said that the Mennonite people, the brethren people, were very sharing with their neighbors in time of need. Widows of veterans often received food and help from their Mennonite and brethren neighbors. Some, instead of selling their goods to the army, sold it to their neighbors at a lower price, particularly those who were poor. And so the testimony that came out from their sharing with their neighbors was, uh, was a positive one. This story comes from the Society of Friends, the Quakers. Stonewall Jackson, who I mentioned last night, was an Old Testament warrior and a New Testament saint. He tried to combine the two. At one of the battles of Winchester, and I have no idea which battle Winchester it was because Winchester changed hands about 70-some times back and forth during the war, the Quaker ladies came to Stonewall Jackson offering to bring food to help soldiers in the hospitals that were hungry. The Quaker people at this time still maintained their distinctive Quaker garb and when these Quaker ladies came to Stonewall Jackson, he said, I would sooner face an army than face those Quaker women. <laughs> Just an example of how that the non-resistant people of the Shenandoah Valley reached out to help those who were in need. Incidentally, this thing of if you're not going to go and be shot at, at least go and, and uh, stand there so somebody else can be, so you can be shot instead of someone else, actually literally happened to a young Quaker father from North Carolina. The Quakers in North Carolina were treated miserably. Their young men went into hiding. The parents were get grounded up and taken to prison and mistreated until your sons show up. But the Quaker, one of the Quaker men from North Carolina was actually taken and made to stand in the front line at Winchester. And as he stood there in the front line, soldiers were being killed all around him, and he stood there, he would change places, and some of the times, the places where he had stood, another soldier stood there and, and was killed, and, and this Quaker young father stood there the whole time. When finally the call was given to retreat, he didn't know what to do, so he just laid down. <laughs> and when the Union Army arrived, there was this fellow lying on the ground in civilian clothes, uh, no, not wounded, no arms or anything, and uh, a literal example of someone who was forced to go against his will. But uh, unfortunately, he was taken to prison camp and contracted a disease and, and died there in the prison camp. So you had people making decisions to hide, decisions to flee north, because the conscience continued to develop that the army was not the place for us. Even those who had gone and refused to shoot eventually left. Only one 
or two who were members of the church voluntarily went into the army during this time in the Mennonite community. In other communities, a large number of young men went into the army, young men who were not, uh, not members of the church, often in communities that were isolated, that had not had a lot of fellowship with other communities. Samuel Kaufman left Greenbrier. His cousins in Greenbrier joined the Confederate Army. Samuel Kaufman became the leader of the non-resistant group there in the Shenandoah Valley. Crisis of conscience. Crisis of conscience. Growing convictions. Strong leadership that called people to faithfulness. Some of the th issues that they faced, we do not face today. But others, issues that they faced through the years, we have faced. We continue to face what do we do in time of war. We continue to face the question, what do we do with the money that God has given us. The scriptural teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on loving your enemies is just as relevant as lay not up treasures on earth. The wise use of our money, the way we relate to our neighbors, all are part of our testimony. Most of what I have said has to do with the men. But in the second part after a time of break, uh, I'd like to talk about the, uh, what happened at home, the families at home, the women, the children. And so I'll turn it back to the moderator. I think you're planning on a short break or something, and then we'll go into the second part.